0: 92nd Street Y online media is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. This program, Misadventures Among the Powerful, features Nobel Prize-winning cognitive psychologist Daniel Kahaneman in conversation with author Daniel Levin. It was recorded on January eighteenth, two 2018, before a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y.
1: Well, um, I should begin, I suppose. That's... Um I know Daniel Levin because he wrote a book that is a serious book, that made me laugh, and uh, and this is a this is rare, that particular combination. And he's a storyteller; he has important stories to tell. And what I'm going to be doing tonight, I see my role as getting him to tell stories, uh, because uh, you will find a lot of. St- can you, can Ah, oh, we're supposed to be mic'd up. I actually. think we're
0: both mic'd up actually.
1: Yeah? I didn't know that I did anything. Is it still working the magic? Or yeah. okay. Uh so uh should I repeat what I said? No. <laughs> it's not I didn't say much. Uh, so Well, Daniel was introduced, and you know a little about what he's doing, but my first question was going to be, and I'm going to stick to it, uh, what do you do for a living? <laughs>
0: yeah. As I write in the book, my wife, Laura, has been trying to figure that out, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, as relevant to the book, most of my time now I spend uh, running this foundation. It was started about 10 years ago by the Prince of Liechtenstein, and it's Uh, On a serious note, it's it's a foundation that was started to approach development a little bit differently. Initially financial development and then go into other areas that the state needs to provide by rethinking this approach that has failed, and we can get into all that a little bit later. Uh, And then at uh, additional levels, this foundation has gotten more and more involved in so-called Track 3 diplomacy, in uh, behind-the-scenes, off-the-cameras diplomacy in war zones and between parties that otherwise wouldn't communicate. Uh, so, and, and it's of course, the setting for a lot of the, the stories <laughs> that you see, some of which predate even the foundation, of course.
1: So, yes, what were you doing before the foundation,
0: then? Uh, Initially, before the foundation, uh, the <coughs> what led, uh, was, as it's relevant to that, is that uh, at the law firm in New York, and part of the law firm was doing work primarily in Africa and other countries, and in the course of that work, we developed a financial development platform. It was a, essentially a counter... Reaction to the way the World Bank and the IMF ha- and the African Development Bank had been doing development work—not, to our opinion, not with too much success—and there was a slightly different approach to that. And that platform is was the blueprint for this foundation.
1: And most of the stories that you tell, I mean, in in the book, are uh, not successes. I mean, they are they are they're worth reading because they're interesting. They're worth reading because there's a sardonic tone to them, but they're not success stories. So, are there success stories? Can you tell us what a success looks like when, when there is one?
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I had thick, beautiful hair before I started <laughs> that work. And then it turned gray, and then it <laughs> went. But um, the it depends. On a serious note, it depends how you define the success. So, the to to uh, the work of. of through this platform and the work of the foundation, th- what we define success as is to find in a country a group of future stakeholders, leaders, contributors to a state. Uh, in other words, uh, if you have a country where let's say, with in, in a war zone or with a lot of corruption, to take an approach that that's gonna play itself out, it's gonna be very hard to stop that, but you have to start planting the seed of the next generation. And to do that, you need to transfer You have to empower that generation with real know-how and real tools on how to do it. So, one of the stories that I consider one of the most successful ones is in the book, and it's perhaps, maybe it doesn't read as a success story, is the Angola story, uh, which in the late 90s, we had a chance to uh, do a, essentially, financial literacy and and political literacy program in Angola. Uh, it was a time that Angola was the darling of most of development institutions. You had the, the Swedish and the French and the Americans and the British. Everyone was there trying to provide some form of development assistance. And we, we asked to take uh, initially about 50 people and try to train them in this. And our approach was the original classic approach of development uh, until we realized, and as I described that in the story, that it didn't make a lot of sense. That, in fact, the people we were teaching knew a lot more about what we were teaching them than we did. Uh, but what the parts that they lacked were the parts that we didn't really provide, and so we rethought that whole approach. And it, I define it as a success because several of the participants of this group ended up actually playing important roles in the development of the country, in the reconciliation in Angola, in the civil war with, between the factions.
1: Daniel, I'm going to ask you to sort of tell part of the book because the story is a very good one—the Angola story—but uh, in. In the sense of, of what it shows about what people know that you think they don't, yeah. and 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 what you don't know that you think you do. So, if you could tell a little bit about that story, I think it would bring to life it's the like kind Rumsfeld's of thing that you known do. unknowns, yeah.
0: kind of thing. Yeah. Um, well, just briefly, we went to Angola. The idea was to Angola had emerged from. It was in the process of emerging from really ugly civil war. Angola was got independence in 1975 uh, after the coup in Portugal after Salazar, and uh, the first president was Agostino Neto, who died uh, after four years from pancreatic cancer, and the, his successor was José Eduardo dos Santos until last year, uh, and we can get into that when we talk a little bit more about corruption too. But um, what made that interesting is that. Uh, Angola had an interesting constellation because the government, the MPLA, which was on its face a Marxist regime, supported by Cuba and initially the Soviet Union, later Russia, uh, and uh, was, had control of the oil industry, whereas the rebels, uh, the UNITA rebels, controlled by Jonas Savimbi, supported by the CIA and apartheid South Africa, uh, had controls primarily of the diamond industry. So essentially the economy was given away. And we had a chance, and there was no financial market to speak of. So in other words, the the economic basis, all the things that had existed previously in colonial times, such as coffee production, were dead. So it was oil and diamonds, essentially, Uh, with all that entails those industries. So uh, hyperinflation and all all the things that come with resource industries. So we we were asked to develop their financial markets, and we approached it as you would as a consultant, essentially, go and start to teach about Price formulation in financial markets, things like that, and so the episode I'm telling in the book is one. One particular lecture I was giving on how prices are formulated, where my driver then took me over lunch to visit a, a black market on the outskirts of Luanda, where uh, everything was being traded. There was a board there. It, it was I'd never seen anything like it. I mean, there was a. It, it was essentially a barter economy, a complete commodities exchange. And not only was everything traded, he then introduced me to his wife, who. Uh, he had studied economics, she had studied English, and he ended up being the translator and she the economist. So maybe <laughs> it, um, uh, you would know a thing or two about that. Uh, anyhow, she, she, then, she was actually running a, a spot in, the, in that black market. And it was all a warehouse. Think of it as a football field side, size warehouse with different boards where prices were being quoted. And she was essentially doing something that turned out to be short sales. In other words, she would allow people to bet on share prices falling. And she didn't know that those are short sales, she didn't understand the regulation, but she was extremely efficient and she ran a business where she would arrange to lend the underlying commodities so someone could bet against it, which is the primary issue, in fact, in short sales, for those who know that. Um, and I, I was just so, I felt first you know, amazed, then embarrassed, then humiliated, because here I had just given this lecture about supply and demand and Adam Smith and all these things, and, <laughs> And uh, everyone was nodding nicely, and in fact, I was talking to people who knew that, and li- and then it made sense. They live in a war a war economy. The one thing they know is the value of things, obviously. Uh, and it was one of those experiences that that caused me to rethink the approach to development because we had gone about it coming in as the outside experts essentially, and this this gets repeated thousands of times in whether it's in economic reform, in healthcare reform, it, it doesn't really matter property rights reforms. Where you really don't start with what the know-how that's available on the ground and the talent that's available.
1: But I mean, is there a way, picking up on that story? Is, is there a way to go from what they know to what they need to know to run a modern economy? I mean, that's. Uh,
0: uh, yeah, I mean, what they really lacked is, and the the pieces that they lacked is, first of all legitimizing this economy, and by doing that, not only making it fair, but also making it available to the population at large. And so our approach moved away from traditional capacity building, essentially, to a much broader financial literacy. We started to write TV programs for the population, explaining economic, basic economic concepts, things that we may take for granted, but they don't. For example, why you shouldn't hide your money under your mattress in a hyperinflation, forgetting s- fire and floods, just in terms of hyperinflation, why it is in fact worth less at the end of the month. Things like that that, that we couldn't understand that those are the real challenges they face. So you start to retailer everything based on what they need. So those were the parts they needed to regulate this, to make it accessible to the population, to educate the population on that. And those then became the parts that we provided.
1: So your your approach is to work on the population or to work on leaders, or Who is it that you were trying to educate? It's both.
0: The the approach in terms of methodology is is a separate question. The the goal is to create a capacity, a technical capacity, and a popular inclusion in a state, whether that's a political inclusion, that people vote and understand what they're voting for, whether it's a financial inclusion, whether it's people willing to register their properties, or whatever it is, go for regular health checkups. It's all the same challenge. In other words, including a population, the methodology was that we, instead of providing solutions which are not really solutions, that just cannibalized copies of the last project experts do, essentially, instead of doing that, we we had a platform that had good and bad examples, including mistakes, that we explained on how these things happen in the world, and then the, the the people on the ground that we initially train make conscious choices and they have two functions one is to implement it and B, to teach the next group so to increase the knowledge base as fast as possible
1: and what's the institutional setup uh, you know when you when you pick people who uh, you hope are going to be the leaders of the country how do you do that and do they become leaders of the country yeah uh, well how uh, to
0: select the right uh, people yeah. I hope I was hoping yeah. you could help me out with that that's more your area than mine this is uh, this we learned over time in, in different, pr- I would mentioned to you the Nigeria projects where the initially one of the mistakes we did is spend an awful lot of time trying to identify qualified candidates to participate. Uh, and at some point we learned that it's almost impossible to anticipate who is going to be really good at it and we started to accept a failure quota of about 50%. Um, that quota, got a little bit better the more women participated. So we ended up learning that there were the more women were involved, the more motivation there was to actually do that job rather than be there for other reasons. Um, but the one of the most important lessons we learned is that no matter what the subject matter is, let's say economic reform, that you don't limit yourself to economists, that you start to branch, that you cast that net as widely as possible. And the wider it's cast, the more likely it is to succeed.
1: So. Returning to the Angola story, what made it a success? How do you measure that in
0: success? In that particular case, that uh, out of about fifty people, between ten and fifteen ended up really playing important roles in the development of the country, based on the tools that they acquired. That's maybe a very modest way of c- defining success, but that was what we had set out to accomplish.
1: I mean, so was the society prepared to, to take them? I mean, to use the talents, or to use what you taught them?
0: It, it, well, you know, I can only go by, uh, by uh, anecdotal evidence, and also uh, acknowledging that, it, I don't know if it's a representative sample, but I'll give you an example. One day, one of we used to fly there every month and spend a week a month there, and you know, I was really, basically, eat, uh, living on malaria pills for the entire duration of those projects, because you have it four weeks before, a week after, or the other way around. So. My wife can attest, I started to hallucinate with the, with the larium and all that. Um, and it looked like I had a drinking problem, actually, because it also attacks your liver. So my doctor was convinced I was an alcoholic, too. Um, and one of the most beautiful experiences was is that we, in one of the sessions, we arrived in Angola uh, on the evening, uh, on the day after the national team had a football game against Namibia. And at passport control, the, uh, the, the policeman at passport control recognized me from the last TV episode that we had done and said, "You know, actually, last night they aired that episode and I chose my family chose to watch it instead of watching the football game. Now, why did he do that? Particular episode was one on pyramid schemes and Ponzi schemes, because what happens usually when financial markets develop, like the same thing happened in Russia, as in Poland as an example, is that uh, that th- there is an initial wave of massive fraud, mainly with pyramid schemes, and it's extremely dangerous because if you cannot stem that, you you compound the sense in the population that financial markets are just rigged, and to undo that takes generations, and you usually kick into the next cycle, the same thing again, uh, and so. Th- you felt that the need, their, their real desire to actually be educated on through mass media, that was TV at the time, on these particular episodes. So it was terribly satisfying to see that there was some penetration there. Again, I'm not going to claim this. You know, the entire population was mesmerized in front of the TV, but it was a satisfactory experience. No, I
1: mean, to beat a football game, I and mean, <laughs> that is a success yeah. story. Now, <laughs> a lot of the book is about Corruption and incompetence. I mean, that's uh, there are more corrupt and incompetent. I mean, separately, more corrupt people and quite a few incompetent people. Actually, corruption is a major theme. Uh, is did you mean to imply or is it just a selection of the book that that power corrupts? Uh, certainly, in the countries in which you operated, I'm not talking.
0: I mean, it's not, I'm not going to, uh, you know, it's not revolutionary to say that power corrupts. Lord Acton wrote it in in 1870, whatever, six or so, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. He also wrote in that sentence, in that quote, by the way, in that letter that uh, uh, good men are almost never, uh, sorry, that uh, great men are almost never good men. He also wrote, by Mm -hmm. the way, in that particular quote. So for those who want to read up on that. you know, you asked me the question, and, and I, I gave it some thought. Uh, I don't know that power always corrupts, and the only way—I mean, let's let's define how I'm measuring it. Do people who uh, who achieve significant power always succumb to corruption, essentially? Right. In other words, does does it does it distort their behavior?
1: Uh, actually, my my impression reading your book was that. What power does is it corrupts the people around the powerful. Yes. I mean, a lot of your book is about the people who surround the powerful, and they seem thoroughly corrupted by it. And
0: right, and I think there the confluence with incompetence is pretty, is pretty uh, close, because we're talking essentially about gatekeepers in some form or another. It can be a minister of finance, he's still a gatekeeper to the ultimate executive fa- power. And I think that uh, it's corrupt in the sense that they no longer do their job—it may be coming with kickbacks and other financial corruption too—but essentially, it's corrupt in the sense that they're not doing the job they were set out to do. But that's because we're misdefining their job as gatekeeper. They view their job as being gatekeepers and keeping the gates closed, making sure no one else approaches the, the people in the center. So once you've defined it correctly, you, you dispel this problem. I think that, uh, in terms of the people themselves in power, I, I, there are examples of of leaders also who have achieved significant power without being corrupt. Uh, you take Mandela as an example. And I, I don't mean that was he a saint or not a saint, but um, Mandela measured, for example, when he the, the discussion came up who should be his vice president, he clearly wanted Cyril Ramaphosa, who's now you know, gonna, he, he just was elected head of the ANC in South Africa. Um, Mandela wanted Cyril Ramaphosa and Joe Slovo, the head of the co- South African Communist Party. Everyone else in the executive committee of the ANC, Walter Sisulu, Oliver Tambo, all the other leaders wanted Thabo Mbeki. He was clearly outnumbered. No doubt, Mandela had the moral authority and all the cachet to be able to say, well, I want Cyril and Cyril's my man. And he said, that's fine, it's a majority vote and I'll succumb to it. And he regretted the vote terribly after Thabo became president. So he stuck to it. So it's one of those, and he showed that, that ability to to not use the power that he had. And he didn't do it for narcissistic reasons. He didn't tweet it right away or anything like that. So essentially, <laughs> it was just the way he was convinced that, that, and it's not that he lacked regal instincts, it's just it's really how he functions. So, so I think there are examples in history where you, you, you don't really see that, even in modern history. And in Mandela's early years, the people around him there was a certain, um, there were essentially, the, maybe it was just the initial euphoria of him coming out, being president, but you felt a different quality of, le- of gatekeepers around him than you did much later, and then later with Tabo and certainly with Zuma afterwards. So you see the cascade of the corruption of the concentric circles around the leaders, there's some correlation between how the leaders themselves behave
1: too. Uh, have you seen and all your experiences, that cascade of corruption being arrested, being being stopped. And is there a way of stopping it? Uh, the, you know,
0: the, I've not really seen it be stopped. I've seen it be sort of really brought to the to the surface and made almost legitimized or official, in a sense. You know, one of the most beautiful examples. I didn't witness this myself, but. I've witnessed this example in other cases, but it's um, well documented uh, that Mobutu, when he was uh, the president in Zaire at the time, now the Congo, uh, he had a beautiful formula. If he needed $5 million for whatever, a new palace or something, uh, he would always ask for 20 because he knew that the central bank governor would need five and the assistant of the central bank governor would five. Mobutu's assistant would need five and he would get five. So he, he completely accepted the whole process. So I don't know if that interrupts the cascade or, or, or actually compounds it, no. but it certainly it, it, it sort of makes it a very... the question is really is, is official corruption still corruption? But in that case...
1: and Can corruption be reversed? Have you seen it reversed?
0: Uh, I've seen corruption reversed. I, I had a, a, a really memorable experience in one of the Gulf monarchies about 12 years ago where I was asked to uh, create an anti-corruption authority or a sort of a task force. And um, it, it, the person in charge of it was a member of the royal family, one of the princes, uh, obviously fabulously wealthy, multi-billionaire, and so on. Uh, and we spent about about four months on this with budgets, with you know, organizational charts, with everything, even selecting the team members. and. Uh, and I'm, gonna embelli- I'm not going to even embellish it, but I'll give you the whole story so you really get the flavor of this. Um, we, when, when we had finished all this work at the end of those four months, I happened to be in that city once, and we finished our work, and at the end of the evening, he said he'd pick me up, and he, just to give me a real local experience, and we drove uh, out to the outskirts of the city, out into the sand dunes. He told me it was it was beautiful, you know, beautiful under the sky. And this is the place he used to go as a little child to play with his father. It means a lot to him. We'd roll down the, the, the dunes and he'd just be a child again. How much he loved it, barefoot. I was in a blue suit with my, with my pants rolled up. Um, and then at the end, we, we sat and uh, drank some tea. And he said, OK, so the only thing that still remains to be done is to discuss my pension fund. And I had no idea what he meant, and, of, and then he explained that, of course, he meant uh, out of the budget that the country was paying for this anti-corruption authority, what would be his kickback, his part? And this was the chairman of the future anti-corruption authority, <laughs> uh, and, 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 and so ridiculously wealthy, it, it made no sense. Uh, so I was convinced, I'm on this is a candid camera or some kind of an IQ test or something, and, uh, and he was dead serious, and the, the project just died. So why am I, I'm telling you this story because uh, I, the, the project was dead, um, he, in fact I remember once driving with my family to my sister-in-law on Thanksgiving many, many years ago, remember that drive? And, uh, and uh, he called, and I was in the car on the phone, just said, I just wanna make sure that everything's okay, as if I was still considering this thing. I actually remember that. He then became a minister, and uh, that episode became known in the country, not, not through me, but mm-hmm. somehow or other, that leaked. Uh, And they did a real investigation and made a decision that uh, to remove, to outsource the anti-corruption authority in that country to a non-national entity that would have full executive powers to do it. So in that sense, it was one of those rare cases where you felt that the country really realized that they couldn't, they were stuck in a chicken and egg kind of situation. And to do that, they had to place it outside.
1: What do you mean by the country, the leader of the country? The
0: leader of the country. The leader of a country ended up ended up saying, th- "We really, we're, we're, it's almost an existential threat if we're really going to be serious about that. This rot, because the Gulf monarchies face this challenge. They're facing and now with the taxes they're introducing. That it always was a deal with the population, which is we don't tax you, we don't touch you, and you don't touch the, you don't you accept the fact that we're monarchs because we're tribes that simply got here a little bit earlier than others, uh, 200 years ago. Uh, once that balance goes away and you start to tax or there's too much corruption." you see this now playing in Saudi Arabia, suddenly the balance falls out of whack. And so the leaders view this issue of corruption as existential, not very different from the Chinese president. Xi Jinping views corruption as a life-threatening issue to the survival of the Communist Party. So they do take it quite seriously. And I believe that he is a person who does try to reverse. You can argue whether he's settling scores or getting rid of people who were appointed by Zhang Zemin or Hu Jintao before him, but he is deeply convinced, and I'm d- deeply convinced of his conviction, that he views corruption as probably the biggest possible threat to the continued uh, power of the Communist Party.
1: And, and he can do it. What about Ukraine? Have you, is Ukraine one of the places that you visited? No, no, the no. My
0: Ukrainian experience is limited to the, uh, the Russia story in the book because the person in the in the story ended up being a Ukrainian then. no? But U- Ukraine is is, you know, fabulously corrupt by reputation, obviously. So uh, I- it's the that,
1: And they try to outsource the anti-corruption.
0: Right. But they have but but the Ukrainian situation is is one other countries face too, which is you need a modicum of political stability in order to even tackle these issues. So um, you know, I, d- I do believe corruption can be extremely destabilizing, as I just said, but if you really want to tackle it, you need significant centralized executive power to tackle it, if you d- because you are fighting against very powerful vested interests. Uh, and if you don't do that, your state falls apart. So what you're
1: saying, it seems to me, but maybe I'm wrong, is that uh, a corrupt autocracy has a better chance than a corrupt democracy. Yes, or could you in
0: terms of dealing with corruption. Yeah, yeah so so I think that China has a much better chance or or, or Saudi Arabia if you will of tackling corruption than let's say Brazil uh, and I don't think that's debatable Brazil is is deteriorating ro- by through the rot essentially and there's no s- not, not mi- no military no political no moral authority in the country that uh, has the ability to to st- to hold that tide
1: now Back to the uh, to what you try to do. Does that mean that you would not even try to operate in Brazil? Or I mean, uh, you know, that sort of gets what, you. What are your criteria for deciding what's feasible and what not?
0: Yeah, I I think you wouldn't. I wouldn't try to tackle the corruption issue in Brazil before I tackled other aspects, such as creating an independent judiciary that's really independent from the executive branch something the U.S. maybe should consider one day, too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but, but I think that before you tackle, uh, I'll give you an example. I've, uh, uh, someone uh, I became friendly with over the years called Ibrahim Mayaki, who was the prime minister of Niger and then played the, uh, the senior position in the African Union. Um, he was prime minister in Niger during the Gulf War when he was trying to tell the White House that they didn't sell any, u- any uranium to uh, Iraq. But no one would want him to even say that, because it was inconvenient for the narrative. Um, he did a poll when he was prime minister in his population, trying to asking the population a menu of questions what they ca- to rank what they cared about the most. And it was the usual thing. It was uh, corruption, safety, health, clean water, school, uh, all, all the, tr- the traditional things you would expect in Niger, in one of the poorest countries in the world. Um, and he said that it was overwhelmingly over 80% of the respondents crossed out the factors and wrote something that translates into rule of law, essentially fairness before the courts, judges that enforce my rights, those kinds of answers people would hand right into it. It was an overwhelming response. And I think, again, that's if you take it now from our perspective of observers or advisors and whatever, however we look at it as consumers of newspapers, I think we just tend to forget how different those challenges are and how much countries crave, in fact, that degree of fairness. So before you go to a country like Brazil, before you deal with technical issues, how I organize anti-corruption efforts, I need to have, first of all, a a legal framework that I think will enforce those rights, actually.
1: And you think that's at all feasible? I mean, in a place that is thoroughly corrupt, can the judiciary not be corrupt? I
0: I think it's feasible. I think you have to trick uh, the rulers uh, into it. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I don't want to name the country, but it's a country that I happened to grow up in in Africa. So, <laughs> uh, in the '60s, uh, we were asked to do a uh, a um, privatization program there, and privatization is one of those tricky things because. The World Bank looks at it as an uh, economic thing. In other words, countries just have to privatize because state-owned enterprises run a huge deficit. Uh, the countries, the rulers, look at it as a political thing because state-owned enterprises are their own fiefdoms, essentially. Uh, and in in that particular case, it was very clear they were privatizing a lot of key industries, telecom, power, electricity. Uh, and our suggestion to the president was um, look, if you really want to privatize and attract foreign investors, you really need to have the rule of law. You need to, property rights need to be respected or no one's going to invest in your country. It's one of the big f- shortfalls. You cannot politicize the judiciary. And he just kicked us out, which really offended me because he, I literally, he knew me when I was five years old, so I was terribly offended. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't do me much good. We then came back at it and said, look, forget all that here's what we'll do. Why don't we just create commercial courts because that's really what investors want to see, judges that understand the subject matter. He then gave the authority to train commercial judges and that was the Trojan horse to then do a judicial reform. So I think you do need to create, let's call it an enabling environment, right? You need to create the conditions and sometimes uh, the, the decision makers need that.
1: Is corruption the same across cultures? I mean, you've worked in so many different places. What do you have to tell us on that?
0: Well, f- you know, I think that the sort of the, y- you know, the example I just gave from the Gulf, it might be a little bit harder to imagine that, to, let's say, in Washington, D.C. Um, but it depends how you look at it. Let's, let's look at it differently, and before we get to specific examples. Let's say Angola is an example. I just mentioned Angola. Angola, you have Dos Santos, been in power. he was in power from 1979 until 2017, 38 years. Uh, absolute power, complete autocrat, an extremely corrupt elite in Angola. Without a doubt, no one would debate that. Even they wouldn't debate that. The only question is whether they're entitled to it or not. Okay, Uh, let's look at him. He, he, an autocrat, he has a beautiful daughter, apple of his eyes, who gets put in all the key positions. Okay, her husband, his son-in-law, a failed businessman in his own right, gets an awful lot of privilege. And his son, Jose Jr., literally called Jr., you can't even make this stuff up, gets put into the family business and the state owned enterprise. Clear state corruption. And you think, hmm, where have we seen that kind of a constellation before, right? <laughs> so, uh, so I don't know if these things are all that different. I think that, uh, you know, I think an example like what I mentioned with Mobutu is a little different, but it's different in Africa today too, unless you're, let's say, in Equatorial Guinea. I mean, there are, of course, places where it's that simple and that essentially, but I think for the most part um, the elements of corruption, the the axiomatic ingredients, the parts that need to be there are universal. The sense of entitlement, the sense that you you commingle state funds with personal funds, that uh, after a certain amount of time in power you view yourself as a savior of the nation and then that moves towards godlike features eventually after a few decades. So I think you reverse engineer it, the difference has happened more when you have a a legal and institutional framework that combats it. So for example, term limits are extremely important, enforcing term limits. It will be fascinating to see in China whether the president will extend it beyond the second uh, term as a president, whether he may leave the presidency and hold on only to the Central Military Commission, like Deng Xiaoping did, and if he compounds the power beyond the considerable power that he already has now, whether that will change, transform how he rules, I don't know that. I don't think so, because at least the assessment so far has been that he's really driven by, by uh, non-corrupt incentives. But term limits are one of the key elements. So in, in that respect, you do see differences, of course, between countries, yes. Uh,
1: what, made you, what made you want to write this book? Uh,
0: you know, the book, I mean, the stories I, I had, written, had written before that. I always wrote diaries so that I had the stories and many more, much to my family's chagrin. They had to listen to this stuff for 20 years. But th- the, the thing that, wanted, that made me write it was that I felt that uh, power has certain, I don't know if it's axiomatic components, but certain elements that, that are common denominators that keep showing up, a certain you know, sense of entitlement, greed. Uh, h- cruelty, sometimes things like that, and I, I, I try to take ten different angles of it and show them in each story. So each each one of the stories has one of those elements in it: manipulation. The Russia story, which is all about manipulation, of course, and and that's what that that was the. I mean, you're tantalizing
1: yeah. us. I mean, can you give a <laughs> can you give an example?
0: well manipulation th- i mean the russia story is one w- i'm the one who's manipulated in the story by this so it's it's yeah. a lot easier when you're the fool because you you know you can just <laughs> write the truth um the you know the russia was was a situation where uh through a lot of discipline the a, a person I had met uh about twelve years ago and was a very visible and loud member of the opposition to the president, uh, and uh, a, quite a well-known person in the country, had uh, stayed in our home. We became really quite good friends, and suddenly disappeared on me. And he was a very, very loud opponent of the president. And he resurfaced you know, just a few years ago in the Ukrainian crisis, actually. You asked about the Ukraine, as the henchman one of the main henchmen of the, of the Russian president, out to the blue, and, and to watch that discipline, to maintain essentially a sleeper function over eight years that I, in, in the interim for me was eight years in this story, you know, was incredible. Uh, the story in, in Dubai in there is, is about, it's manip- me essentially fooling myself because of my desire about something. Now, Dubai was where I just couldn't see the obvious lies that were being told to me because I was asking myself the wrong questions also. And I, I was so driven by wanting to do a particular project that I just couldn't see what was obvious to anyone on the outside. So, so yeah, I just took those uh, elements, of course, uh, like, like manipulation, like deceit, like greed, like uh, you know, just cruelty, and planted them into each story.
1: I mean, you didn't have to plant them, you picked the stories.
0: I ba- the, the stories were the, those motifs of each mm. one, yes. The stories are, are true stories.
1: One would assume so. Yes. Yeah. I mean, some stories are actually recognizably true. So how much care did you take to hide the identity of the characters?
0: I I didn't. uh, The the only times I really hid them, more so in the next book than in this one, is if I I really anonymized them without being able to reverse engineer them, if I felt that the person was a victim, essentially. I didn't. I, I wasn't trying to be cruel, of course. Uh, or not a bad person, no reason to embarrass. Uh, I didn't try that hard to anonymize a person if I felt that there were villains, but I didn't name them because then this becomes a, you know, story in the New York Post rather than what it's supposed to be about. And it, it wasn't supposed to be a witch hunt on an individual.
1: I haven't seen the reviews of your book, but did they did they do uh, reverse your anonymizing? Yeah, some did. So, some of so it there's a story on the State some Department, of it is yes. On yes. the State Department, is pretty transparent. Uh, well
0: there there are few options yeah. but yes uh
1: yes. yeah this uh, this makes yeah it if you had put the name on it uh that would be the feature that everybody would right, be talking right but about. then
0: you then that's michael wolf you know none, i yeah. mean michael wolf is a great success and i'm sure it's it's fun but that really wasn't what i was trying to do uh, at all But also you know in the state department it, it constantly i think I you know our our daily life here is so politicized that it really just becomes a political game. You're going to be praised by those who oppose the person you've just unmasked, and you're going to be vilified by those who support them. So it, it, we've become so tribal in that respect that what I'm really trying to write about is m- that story is about entitlement. That's not about whether a particular political person is corrupt or not, or allows for corruption. It's about this, just this complete sense of entitlement in that respect, when you ask me is it so different across the globe, it is, that part is not different. The one thing that's always in common is different. The one thing I found, uh, and maybe the current administration is starting, like I said in Angola, starting here, our administration started to resemble your traditional African strongman in that respect, is that um, I was always amazed over the years, and mainly in Africa, because that's where most of my work was and where I'd grown up, to see the lack of outrage against bad leadership or corrupt leadership. And it was always explained to me two ways. One one way, very sardonically, a friend of mine in South Africa always said that the reason that's the case is just there's simply no good ones left because the good ones die young, essentially. That was the sardonic answer. The uh, the more serious answer I, I would always get was that that uh, it's we moralize something that others don't moralize. We moralize bad behavior when, in fact, the average person in Angola or anywhere in that sense really just wants to be in that position of power so there's an admiration built into that outrage or an envy but an honest envy uh, and I don't know if that's universal I think that's maybe culturally that it helps to have a certain sort of evolution enlightenment over several generations to move away from that at least you don't you don't create an ideal out of bad leadership
1: I mean in light of all this, you know what I really find astonishing is your optimism in, you know, in doing what you do. So, th- elaborate on that. <laughs> I mean, what what keeps you going?
0: Well, if I if I elaborate on my optimism, I'm worried I'll lose it. So, uh, <laughs> uh, I I didn't experience even the the disappointing stories. Quite so I even I obviously made the mistake of reading the reviews too, okay. uh, and uh, I didn't experience them always as so uh, the, the the stories themselves as so damning, you know. Because along the way, even let's say the Dubai story in there, where I really look foolish, essentially. I mean, I do look foolish because the person is ob- an obvious fraud. Um, but along the way, y- you know, I met people and had experiences that were really fun. People who are my friends still today. The stories, many, many years ago. Um, and so I didn't perceive them even as I wrote them. I didn't perceive them as that negative. And there is, you know, you ask me what are the success stories. I mentioned, you know, Angola to you. But th- there are really success stories. And when you stay in, t- maybe it's silly and maybe it's vain, but if you work with a person who ends up. Uh, ends up reaching interesting positions later. There's someone in a a South American country who did a project where that person ended up playing, doing something really important work at the IMF, for example. It's it's satisfying, not that I take some great credit for it, but it's satisfying to be able to witness these things. So I think that there is, uh, I didn't perceive it as that crushing as perhaps the reader did. So I don't feel it's odd to be optimistic about it.
1: And let me ask about the notion of a platform, because it made me quite curious. In a way, the notion of a platform, uh, it it claims some generality, and I was surprised about the generality. That is that you can use a platform in very different political situations, in very different cultures, at different levels of development. So what, what is it that made it a platform and kept it flexible enough so that you could apply it in so many different contexts?
0: Well, uh, in the the inception, the platform was a financial platform, so let's start with that. But we're now working on judicial platforms, property rights, other areas. But what made it different was precisely that if you work in the field of development, the way, I'm not gonna bore you to tears, but just one minute on this. Generally, the way development works is you take any country, let's say, Let's say uh, Indonesia needs a financial literacy program, okay, with all the challenges, a lot of islands and distance learning. Uh, so then uh, let's say the World Bank or the Asian Development Bank has that project. They will do out put out a tender for consultants. Usually McKinsey or something like that wins the mandate. Um, and the first thing that happens, and that's why 80% of these development projects never see the light of day, is that the project, even though it gets defined by the target, it ends with a diagnostic study. So basically, you get a platinum-plated 50-page report. that gets submitted to the Minister of Finance in Indonesia, then, and then it's a go implement. So of course, this g- s- ends on some shelf. Nothing happens. So that's the first mistake that happens. The next thing, if you're lucky enough, in the 20% of the cases that get implemented, the McKinsey, and I'm not trying to vilify McKinsey. It could be any consultants, OK? Uh, just as an example, they, they have a knowledge library that they try to amortize. They take the last project they did and say, OK, now we're in Indonesia. Why don't we look at what we did in Zambia? That must work in Indonesia after all, they're right next to each other, <laughs> or not. Uh, and so, they, and so they, they take that, cannibalize it, and usually the Zambia project was really cannibalized because let's say they had UK consultants, they just copied the UK financial laws, <laughs> right? After all, they both speak English, so what could go wrong? Uh, and so, but this is in fact, I'm not even being silly about this, this is exactly how that happens, so by the time these projects get implemented, it, the outcome is obviously silly. So it's not to say that we just say, okay, this is all done, we're going to do it right, we have the ideal line. The first lesson to learn, and that was Angola, one of those experiences, is you cannot just go to Indonesia as an outside expert and say this is what you need to do. Th- there are very, very few areas. Yes, perhaps malaria prevention, we can agree it's good to distribute nets okay, Uh, uh, or if you really want to make sure you don't have too many diabetics in Ethiopia, maybe Coca-Cola shouldn't offer free coke, right? I mean, there are such things, but in terms of more, you know, detailed projects like that, you're going to do that, you have to have a broad menu of options that they can implement based on good and bad examples that were done elsewhere in the world, and you have to show the consequences of these decisions. If you're going to have, let's say, a consumer protection agency, are you going to have a model of consumer protection that does what it's supposed to do, namely protect the consumer, are you going to try and export a US model, which is kind of caveat emptor, as long as we have a warning on a bottle that says, you know, this could contain cyanide, so it could actually hurt you, but as long as the warning's on, there's nothing wrong with selling the cyanide, right? This so-called disclosure control, which is the US model that's dominating the development world, actually, in in many areas. Uh, And so You have to show the consequences of these actions, and if you're intellectually honest about it, it's a lot of work to do that, but if you can do that, then that's a completely different form of development, because I'm not saying, look at Zambia, they did it right. In fact, if in the area, let's say, of privatization, one of the countries the most successful program was Morocco, but only for one reason, which is Morocco separated the valuation of the state companies with the execution of the transaction, and that meant that all the corruption which comes in the valuation, how much money they're worth and who gets the proceeds, that was outsourced and separated so that the people doing the deal, the privatization, couldn't grab that part. That was the eureka moment of the last king, before the current king even, and it was hugely successful. Uh, so their banks were privatized and are thriving banks, the only ones really in North Africa that deserve to say be said that. All. So you take that and say, let's look at that lesson. This, they did it right. Then you look at another country said, they got it wrong. Let then the people on the ground make those decisions. So it's a different approach.
1: I think I'm getting a clear signal that time has come for me to stop asking questions. And and so uh, we'd love to open up the questions to the audience. Uh, So if you just raise your hand, I'll come around. Would you comment on (coughs) the country of Botswana and why it may work um, better than other countries? I'm not sure what I mean by that, but tell us about Botswana.
0: Botswana is is a success story in the sense that it's a wealthy country in terms of natural resources, mainly diamonds, uh, and it hasn't succumbed to the same degree of corruption. Uh, Botswana made a calculation, to go back, Danny, to your question before, is it easier to combat corruption in an autocracy versus in a multi-party democracy, right? Botswana is a good example where uh, you want to tier your development, and they made a conscious decision to first make sure that they don't have massive corruption, and then at a much later stage worry about multi-party democracy. So their, and their transitions as a result, became peaceful, but in a controlled environment, within a ruling party. It was the wise decision to make. Uh, and and pr- the only one in the Southern African development c- community that actually worked. Even Zambia, or a neighbor of Botswana, you know, I went, th- you had Kaunda. This is another, by the way, another little thing. Um, Mandela was one of the few independence liberators who also governed in a clean way. That's And because that was one of our fallacies to think that, an independence hero necessarily is good at governing. It's a totally different skill set. Why should you be? So if you look at just Africa, and this you can transit anywhere, you had, you know, except for Nyerere in Tanzania, you had Nkrumah, Kenyatta. I mean, most independence leaders somehow or other became corrupt when they were in power. And I'm not, t- I'm not talking about guys like Mobutu because he wasn't really the independence leader. It was Lumumba in, in Congo. Um, in in uh, Zambia, Kaunda, and that was what Botswana looked like as a bad example. You had Kaunda, who was an independence leader, became corrupt, and the person who followed him is Chiluba, who was a trade unionist, whom I met several times, really charming, great guy. Um, The only giveaway, I'm sorry this sounds a little catty, but the only giveaway that there was... Perhaps a slight Machiavellian and Napoleonic streak was that he was very short and wore huge heels. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's the only telltale sign. Whether it's Sarkozy or Be- Berlusconi or others who just can't handle their height, right? So that's a, w- a little bit of a warning sign. But, <laughs> but that was the only giveaway with Chiluba. And Chiluba, he was railing against Kaunda's corruption, and uh, and it was time to open up to multi parties. And they opened up to multi parties as soon as Chiluba was in power, he became extremely corrupt. And Botswana looked at that and said, we have to shelve the multi-party thing, which is essentially a Western export item, right? Especially, it's so funny coming from the US in a two-party system, right? I find that always funny that we export multi-party democracy. Uh, okay. But, a, a, and they looked at Botswana and said, let's make sure with the resources that we have that we don't fall into the corruption and Dutch disease and all the things that happen when you have natural resources worry at a much later stage. And they, they did that successfully and had peaceful transitions from one to the other. So it was. Uh, Botswana and Senegal, for me, are probably the two most successful stories in Africa in terms of one multi party, one not multi party, but had peaceful transitions.
2: Um, I want to say, first of all, I really enjoyed the book. Um, and I related with the Middle East part uh, from my own personal experiences. Uh, I'm actually going to cheat a little bit and have a two part question for you. Uh, one is speaking about cultures and corruption. Uh, you know, there is corruption everywhere. We have corruption in the U.S. It just happens in a different way. After you finish your Senate term, you work for a consulting company, and that's basically the corruption Sometimes
0: before you finish Before your term. you finish <laughs> as well, <Yeah.
2: laughs> exactly. Uh, but I always wonder why uh, certain countries like Scandinavia, you know, and in Transparency International, and where they are, that they are, they have a better control of corruption compared to other places. Uh, t- I'll take Lebanon, for example, a uh, country I know dearly, uh, the French sent in the 1950s an economist to go and try and reform their economic system. And after months of study, he came back and he said, don't touch a thing. If we touch anything, this entire financial system will collapse. And it's, it's a very well-known anecdote there that was a true anecdote. So I wonder, and I want you to see with your experience a little bit, and you know Lebanon well as well, What's the cult, there, there must be some kind of cultural uh, connection there other than the macro corruption that occurs in the world. The second question I have, um, it deals with that micro, which is your personal relationships, which I found fascinating. One of the favorite parts for me about the book is the psychology of dealing with people and with the different characters. And I think that's something that th- this discussion has kind of skipped over a little bit because it's actually one of the more fascinating parts. It's not just what happened in Angola as, as a macro but also how to deal with people. And I think that is something that is truly uh, fascinating about w- what brings out that corruption in people, that pursuit of power. And I would love to hear a little bit more about both those subjects. Do you want to say anything? No, no. Uh, <laughs> I'm well glad I, that you, uh, uh, you. First of all, the the,
0: uh, the second question, I think I, I don't want to get too much into that because I'd rather spend more time on the first. I don't I don't um, work on the assumption that they are meaningful cultural differences on individual basis. I think there are differences in environments, uh, and I think that uh, people under stress make compromises that perhaps when you're not living under stress, you have the luxury of not being exposed to. So uh, I, I don't approach countries, and I certainly don't do it by national borders. You, we can talk about, you know, religious cultures, language group cultures, things like that, that have different identities, but I, I think that's a, It hasn't served me well to make those delineations. When it comes to Lebanon, look, I I know how much it means to you, and and obviously uh, we met on a flight to Lebanon once, (laughs) many years ago, full disclosure to Beirut. Um, uh, I I look at Lebanon as a failed state, essentially, and I think that uh, it's a proxy state. You have, We don't have to get into the whole history of Lebanon, but even within the the groups themselves, you have, even let's take you look at the Shia militia between Amal and Hezbollah, you have you, you have a failure, essentially, you have a constant conflict, and in that kind of a situation, it doesn't really work. Lebanon reminds me, um, because I was just thinking of the strike of the garbage collectors, essentially, because you have huge heaps of garbage that heap up in Beirut. Uh, Lebanon reminds me of this joke that uh, in the book, a friend, uh, someone, a, a Kenyan person, who was interning at the UN tells me, uh, this uh, story, basically, it's a, in fact, the true story is that Uganda and Singapore at independence had about the same GDP. That's actually true. Uh, and you look at the development of Uganda and Singapore since and so the joke is let's say that a Ugandan and a Singaporean have studied Oxford together in the 50s pre-independence go back to their countries each become finance minister because they l- they read economics and uh, and uh, one year after they're in power the the Ugandan go visit, goes visit goes his friend in Singapore sees a whole city state rising Lee Kuan Yew's vision and so on and so on is amazed and says my goodness how did you do they said it was really quite simple his colleague says you know let's say we need a new road I put out a tender, some company won the contract, I took 10% for myself, the road got built. And he's very impressed, he goes back, and then the Singaporean visits him a few visits later, reciprocates the visit, and looks out and sees nothing but shacks and dirt roads and open sewage, which, by the way, is not Uganda, but I'm just, just it's a better story that way. Um, and he says, what happened? I thought we talked about that. And his colleague says, I don't know, we, I, we did exactly what you did, we, let's say we need a new road, I put out a tender, some company won the contract, I took 100% for myself and nothing got built. <laughs> so, so I think that uh, Lebanon is approaching that, that's the point, so that's a separate debate. You know, How much corruption is actually healthy for the development of a country? I don't want to get, that's a lot of moral hazard in that and I'd rather not tape that session. So, uh, but essentially I think Lebanon is, is critically, aside from Syrian involvement, Hariri assassinations, the whole farce now with Hariri in, Sa- in Saudi Arabia and all that, you see it's a failed state when your prime minister can be forced because he's a dual citizen, which was a shakedown, too, by the way. He was just trying to get his assets there. So I think that you look at all these signs, if you don't look at Lebanon as a failed state, you're going to miss the boat. And I think Lebanon has a, has reached that point in the joke where we're close to the 100 percent level, where, in fact, stuff just doesn't get done anymore. Right. And so, I- you know, I think that's how you look at it. And you feel that in a country. You know, there are certain, certain places, certain countries, certain industries where there's no incentive left to actually produce something, where the incentives because there are just too many people eating at the trough, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't think there's a you know, different DNA makeup of a Norwegian from a Lebanese or, or, or anyone else. I, I, so I don't think it's that. I just think that in entirely different scenarios, I think that uh, Norway is probably the interesting example because it's an oil producing country, and it hasn't really succumbed to that, at least not on any kind of scale of what we consider, you know, Nigerian scale or oil producing country scale, or Venezuelan scale. Um, but Norway has had more incidents of corruption in other Scandinavian countries, also coming from the oil and gas and the sovereign wealth fund industry. So if you take the scale out of it and you just look at correlation, I don't know that it's so all so different. So just be caref- I'd be careful with that judgment.
1: And it looks like we have time for two more questions, and I saw these two hands next, but uh, do feel free to continue the conversation over the signing table. So here we go, two last questions. Um, I noticed
0: in a way it has to do with the last uh, man's question, but you left
1: out a pocket of the world. And when you talk about entitlement, do you not think that uh, France, England, Britain, uh,
0: Italy, all these countries, uh, you don't think that people have a sense of entitlement which can lead to some form of corruption? You mean in the political class? Yes. I mean, people in power yes. essentially sense of entitlement. Yes. Yeah, I, I certainly do think that, and I think if you've spent uh, any time in Washington D.C., you would certainly feel that too. I think that it's it's what happens there is you have much much larger bureaucracies, and so that entitlement gets somewhat more diffused. But you see it the whole time, whether you want to measure it by. Someone's assistant being unspeakably rude to you on the phone, or whether you see it in deeper forms of corruption. But in terms of, it it's, it feels much more concentrated and visceral if you're dealing in a, in a with a smaller executive, with far fewer people who have amassed much more power among themselves. So I, I don't know whether the aggregate amount of entitlement is measurable. I don't. That's a metaphysical question. I, I can't. Th- you're in a way <laughs> better position than I am to answer <laughs> it. Uh, But no, I do think you have a sense of entitlement. I think in, in many cases, my personal experience, uh, and friends of mine will attest to that, that I find it far more infuriating, let's say, in the Western Hemisphere to encounter that entitlement uh, than, than I do. Because there's, there's something about this, bu- this bureaucratic entitlement that's really Kafkaesque, that's so infuriating that I much prefer the sort of charismatic villain. That's uh, just a personal preference. At least you're entertained. <laughs> the other form of entitlement is not only entitled, also bores you to tears. So, so if we're really going to get into generalizations, at lea- but I would never claim that you don't have that massive sense of entitlement.
3: Yeah. So um, just first, in before I begin, in regards to your previous question, um, I think it might be um, nice to take into account that Lebanon was colonized, whereas Scandinavia has not been. Um, But anyway, in terms of questions, um, I wanted to ask about some of the paradoxes um, inherent to development economics. Given that um, development is well and good, but can you really have so much development when at the same time you have a lot of exploitation of Africa and, I mean, mostly Africa, but Latin America, the global south, like, how much can development help when at the same time you have multinational corporations coming in um, aggressively marketing soft drinks, um, extracting resources, et cetera, um, which can in turn lead to more corruption and, uh, uh inferior quality of life. And also, to what extent will, um, helping a country, developing it, extend when, uh, it doesn't benefit the West for, historically it, just hasn't gone that well, going back to um, Mossadegh being deposed in 53, to Allende in the 70s, to um, even dictators, whatever your opinions on them being deposed today, um, stemming less from their human rights violations than from the fact that their policies have not been beneficial for the West. Like, To what extent does development stop when it stops being beneficial for the West?
1: Well,
0: uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'll try not to answer purely academically, just one academic answer and then perhaps a more anecdotal answer, because uh, I think that's also the way you prefer it. But um, the, I don't think, uh, the question is not can development work in that environment, in, ex- let's say, exploitative situations, let's say, Africa and with, pol- with the colonial heritage, the ugly colonial heritage too, and the fact that obviously countries with resources are going to be far more vulnerable to that, first by outside powers and then by their own. Uh, I think if you do development correctly, that also includes public awareness of the development of the countries, I think you can do it at the same time in those environments. And also ask yourself, what's the alternative to that? To basically say, well, okay, we're just not going to do any development because there's so much exploitation or corruption. The the way to look at it, perhaps, um, and this is, this is in fact true, in 2005, ExxonMobil signed uh, oil deals in Chad. They had done deals in Chad. Chad, one of the poorest countries in the world. Um, at this, In the same year, the entire US government efforts, development efforts, whatever, USAID, Exxon, whatever you want to talk about, was less than $20 million in Chad, OK? Uh, so when the someone from the State Department travels to Chad, obviously no one's at the airport to receive him, when the head of ExxonMobil goes there with a $500 million signing bonus. Mm-hmm that goes to the local rulers. Obviously, there's a red carpet, and guess you guess who President Idris Deby is going to pay attention to, and is going to be. By the way, the funny part about that story, if you want to laugh, I don't really, but if you wanted to laugh, is that uh, shortly after that transaction, Rex Tillerson became CEO of Exxon, and then, of course, a few years later, he became Secretary of State. So we managed to merge beautifully the corporate aspect and the state aspect. I think that, on a more serious note, you don't really have the luxury only of railing against development efforts. Because we sit here and say, "Okay, this has gone terribly wrong, a lot of silliness. But there's also, there are amazing development efforts on the ground. And um, even in the countries that might be fabulously corrupt or ruled by autocrats. Let's take Uganda, because we talked about Uganda briefly before. You know, the one thing, whenever history is going to be written on Museveni, and Museveni has gotten a lot wrong. We talked about it many times before. and, and, the U.S. and the development world, you know. I was asked into a meeting on Museveni in the 90s for the first time with said, what kind of project should we do in Uganda to develop the country? And we spent months preparing a project for USAID. The British DFID was involved in that. It was a huge project on institutional development, parliamentary reform, executive power, judicial reform, all that stuff, culminated in a meeting at USAID in Washington where I was informed in the meeting that in fact the decision has been made that of uh, that the project they would do in Uganda would be a bovine-sperm-quality project, okay? (laughs) And, of course, again, I was looking around saying, okay, this is candid camera, obviously someone's (laughs) playing a practical joke. Uh, And the truth is, it was really, that was the project was done, and, of course, it dawned on me later that Museveni is the biggest cattle owner in the country, and he really wanted someone else to foot the bills to make sure he doesn't have mad cow disease among his herds. Every few years, there was a meeting in Washington, whether it's, uh, you know, the Africa desk of the treasury or uh, or USAID, what should we do about Uganda? Every election cycle is becoming more autocratic. And and initially, you say, would you guys remember that meeting we had in the 90s? Maybe it would have helped if we had done something else. But of course, you don't look at development that way. So to me, if you do development properly, you can, in fact, make a difference. I do do believe that. So that's maybe that optimism, uh, because, Decisions have consequences. Bad ones have consequences, and good ones have consequences. Uh, and and so, I, I'm not, so I don't view it that way. I don't think that you should just abandon it because you don't have the luxury of doing it. Countries that really are in need of development.
1: Great. And I think that's all we have time for. So please help me thank uh, Daniel Levin and
3: Daniel Kahanaman.
0: Thank you for listening to this 92Y program. For more information, visit 92y.org. This program is copyright 2018 by the 92nd Street Young Men's and Young Women's Hebrew Association.